Welcome to my series of podcasts on the history of British psychiatry since the time of the Renaissance. I'm Rab Houston of the University of St Andrews and we're now on the 11th block of podcasts. That 11th block comprises three podcasts and they're structured around the theme How was suicide understood in the past? In the first of those three podcasts, I'm going to be exploring the sources that are available for understanding suicide in the past. And the title of the podcast gives you some flavour of what I'm going to say. It's called Hidden from History. Suicide is the most private of acts. It leaves surviving relatives and friends with more profound puzzlement guilt and shame than any other kind of death. It's the cause of bereavement, most likely in the present day, to make the living experience mental problems. Even now, when the subject is discussed more openly in mass media, we often speak of it in day-to-day life in hushed terms. This is a legacy of centuries of horror and condemnation which I want to look at in this block of three podcasts. Today I'll explain how we know about suicide in the past because it's far from straightforward to get evidence and difficult, even when you have it, to interpret it. In the following podcast, I'll outline historic patterns of suicide, which contain some very unexpected surprises, and I'll explore attitudes towards it. Then in the third, I conclude by showing what insights we can gain into the mind of the suicide using historical evidence. Before the 19th or even the 20th century, A lot of what we know about suicide in England and Wales comes from the records of coroners' inquests. From the 13th century until the present day, coroners investigated some, but not all, sudden or suspicious deaths. To give you a flavour of how selective they were, 19th century English coroners investigated about one death in 20. The reliance historians place on inquests means that what we know about historic suicide is only ever part of the story. And I want to explain why we have to view historic suicide through what is largely a legal filter rather than directly from clinical or demographic records. First of all, we live in a world saturated with information. The UK Office for National Statistics can provide us now with an endless array of rates. But having statistics on just about everything is quite a recent development. The first national census of British population only took place in 1801. There was no vital registration of births, marriages and deaths 
in England and Wales until 1837, in Scotland until 1855, and in Ireland until 1854. Parish registers, which recorded baptisms, marriages and burials between the 16th century and those dates, seldom mention suicide and often tell us little except a person's name. If you've ever researched your family tree, I think you'll probably know what I mean. Now, the second reason for a reliance on inquests is that much of the literature that dealt with suicide in the past was written by theologians and philosophers, and that's true well into the 19th century. Their aim was usually to prove, um, sometimes at very considerable length, the Christian proposition that suicide was the wrong way to die. To give a flavour of their approach, they usually describe suicide as self-murder. Until the 19th century, too, medical men seldom kept case notes about anything, including suicide. Bethlehem Hospital didn't start archiving case notes until 1816, and admission records for all asylums were based primarily on the testimony of a patient's family. Suicidal tendencies are mentioned in roughly a fifth of all asylum admissions, but the, un the admission petitions unfortunately tell us little more than that. If, if mentioned at all in the press, it was generally in historic terms, to make some moral point about social problems using suicide as a pointer. The illustration for this week's podcast is a very good example. It follows the manner of William Hogarth's 18th century series, The Rake's Progress, which I talked about a few weeks back. It's a folding book containing eight scenes depicting the evil consequences of drink. In the final scene, a young woman throws herself from a bridge in despair. The third reason for a reliance on coroner's inquests is that the subject was socially taboo, even in the most intimate correspondence amongst relatives and friends. Death notices in a public medium like newspapers often fail to mention that a person killed themselves, even when they, we know this was the case from other evidence. Survivors could therefore rewrite their family history and hide a suicide from the probing eye not only of contemporaries but also the historian. And the fourth reason is that Rather than just a private tragedy, suicide was actually a crime in England and Wales until at least as late as 1961. Coroner's inquests had to determine whether or not someone who died by their own hand was mentally disturbed at the time. A person who was not in their right mind, or non compus mentis, which is the official Latin verdict, or was until the 20th century, someone who was non compus mentis incurred no penalty. Nowadays, we might assume that anyone who takes their own life is mentally troubled. 
But that was not the normal verdict of an inquest until well into the 18th century. Instead, inquest jurors usually found the person was a self-murderer, a felon of himself or herself. In official Latin terminology, a fellow de se. Suicide, <coughs> beg your pardon, suicide was indeed against the laws of God as well as man. Such was the horror surrounding it that the suicide might receive a posthumous punishment. Until the 19th century, a verdict of felo de se meant that Anglican clergy could refuse to read the burial service over the body of a suicide, thereby denying the dead access to interment in consecrated ground. Some suicides, but by no means all, might even be buried at a crossroads or beside the public highway, with a stake driven through them. There was no official sanction for this. It's not a legally recognised sanction. It was instead part of folk custom, and it seems to have been rare unless the dead person had done something awful before they killed themselves, such as commit murder. The idea of the stake was to prevent the person's spirit from wandering and so interfering with the lives of the living. Now that was not the end of it. Uh, justice in the past was highly retributive and punitive. Until 1870, Culpable suicides, in other words those with the label fellow de se attached to them by a coroner's inquest, could forfeit their movable assets to the Crown. That was the standard punishment for any felon up to 1870, including a felon of him, himself or herself. The rationalisation here was that the suicide had deprived the sovereign of a subject. So, you can probably see there was an incentive to cover up suicidal death for financial reasons. By 1800, non-compass mentis verdicts were the norm. Something like 90% of coroner's inquests found suicides to be not in their right minds. Some historians have presented this as a medicalization of suicide a psychiatrization almost, an acceptance of the link between a desire for self-harm and some sort of mental illness. To me, that's only partly true. In fact, the verdict was a legal one rather than a medical one, which seems to have grown in popularity as a way of forestalling the penalties I've just outlined, especially forfeiture. The change came about because of different sensibilities about punishment rather than new ideas about medicine and the mind. Indeed, most doctors and lawyers remained of the opinion that many suicides knew exactly what they were doing, whatever the coroner's inquest might find. Commentators described the non-compass mentis verdict as a pious fiction, designed to shield the good name and property of the dead person and their family. Coroner's inquests could bring such verdicts because they weren't bound by the same rules of evidence as other courts.
What I'm trying to do here is to explore why we need to look through legal filters and look in particular at coroner's inquests to understand suicide right up to the 20th century. I'm also trying to explain some of the filters which mean that the picture we see is necessarily distorted or vague. For most of history, surviving documents like coroner's inquests only allow us to observe people who successfully took their own lives, and in the case of coroner's inquests, who were investigated. It is, however, likely that many, many more people tried to kill themselves than succeeded. You may have been surprised to learn that suicide was a crime in England and Wales until 1961. Even attempted suicide was a criminal offence. It was a breach of the peace in England and England and Wales until 1925, provided it took place in public. During the late 19th and early 20th century, there were thousands of arrests and some incarcerations of those who tried to kill themselves, though I think the reason may have been to place the vulnerable in secure care rather than simply to punish them. Prison chaplains and private philanthropists offered them counselling while in detention. Scotland had broadly similar laws to England. In Scotland, laws about forfeiture were seldom enforced after the end of the 17th century, and attempting suicide was never a criminal offence in Scotland. Scotland did not investigate suspicious deaths by coroner's inquests. Instead, that was the job of ordinary magistrates. Those magistrates generally did not keep records of self-murder because their main aim was to determine if someone else had been involved and thus if a prosecution was necessary. I mentioned earlier that 19th century English coroners investigated roughly one death in 20. Scottish magistrates did just one in 40. The investigative systems are still different in Scotland compared with England and Wales and this can make comparisons of modern suicide rates quite difficult. I spent a lot of time today on sources because I think we need to understand the problems of identifying suicide in the past and also see why it was so hard to establish rates and causes let alone to enter into the mind of the suicide. But the patterns that emerge from the documentation we have are robust and I'm going to set them out and try to explain them next time. Do please join me for the next podcast on suicide in the past.